Insight and Awareness Spiritual Explorer. Soul Intuitive, Emotional and Spiritual Mentor and Award-winning Author, Lorraine Nylon. Welcome Explorers, I'm your host Lorraine Nylon and I want to thank you for being part of the adventure. Today our guest is Renaud Perifoid, who is a therapist, teacher and the author of Why You Feel the Way You Do, Understand and Heal the Source of Stressful Emotions. So I'm really interested to talk to you and I want to know what is behind our negative emotions, unhealthy response patterns and distorted thought patterns, which I got directly off your book description. Well, emotions have fascinated me for a long time, and to understand what they are, you need to use a neurobiologist, look at the term affect, and affects are things that drive you to do something. So the simplest ones are what they call sensory affects, heat, cold, pressure. You know, the colder I am, the more I want to get warm. The warmer I am, the more I'm I have a desire to get, uh, you know, cool. And the next level up are what they call the homeostatic affects, which are the things that create a balance in your body. So hunger and thirst are the two big ones. You know, the thirstier I am, the more I want to get water. The hungrier I am, the more I want to eat. And then emotions are kind of the next level up. And they get tied into your thinking patterns and your beliefs and your experiences as you grow up. And there's basically seven circuits that they found. And we share these with our pets and all the other animals, you know, that are, you know, mammals. And, you know, the, the, the ones that you're familiar with, you know, anger and fear, everybody knows about those two circuits. Lust yeah, comes sure. up during adolescence. We're all familiar with that one. Uh, a couple of the ones that were interesting are one is called seeking. And if you look at uh, babies or uh, puppies or kittens or whatever, they have this desire to go out and explore their environment. Uh, and it's just a drive. And it's actually an emotional drive, just like the other emotions that we have to go out and explore the environment, looking for good things, bad things. It's why when you go to a new situation, the first situation, first thing you do is you look around, kind of check everything out. Uh, and that's just kind of an inner drive. You just want to know what's out there. Uh, another one that's kind of interesting is the play circuit. And again, uh, mammals have that. And we are social animals. Mammals tend to be very social, and that's how we learn limits. In fact, I had my great-granddaughter out at the playground today, and I was just watching all the the kids uh, play and yeah they're learning what what you can do and what you can't do i, I was looking at uh, what do i say <laughs> no i don't want to do that you know and uh so we learn social limits and we still as adults like to play you know we, we enjoy yeah, uh, humor sure. we enjoy doing things that are fun it, it clicks into that old pleasure center of the brain so when people shut down their play you know because you do get people that have you know, they've shut down that part of themselves. How does that impact them? Well, you can shut, all of these can be shut down. I mean, right. probably the saddest example, there's a circuit called the panic, calls it the panic circuit, but we know it more as separation anxiety in kids. And so yeah. when a child is, you know, the, the adult or the caregiver is gone, they go into panic. And the same thing with, you know, other mammals. And then that triggers a caring circuit in the parent that wants to respond to that. You see that with kids on the playground when one falls down, all the other kids, you know, kind of look around and they have concern. Uh, you had babies come in from uh, Eastern Europe, uh, orphanages that had not been held. Uh, the bottles were popped up, so they never got any interaction with human beings. And so when they would cry, because they weren't responded to, they eventually just quit crying. 
And when they yeah. were adopted, you found that they had problems with attachment. They had what were called attachment disorders. And so all of these circuits, just like anything else with human beings, can be uh, are modified by our experience and uh, also our beliefs and our expectations about what's good, what's bad, what's safe, what's not safe. So while in, in the average person, they're all kind of, you know, working there, they don't have to be. And you have people where the caring circuit and stuff, you know, we call them sociopaths. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're not working the way they're supposed to work. So it's, it's like anything else with human beings. There are things that can interfere with the normal function of them. Uh, and by the way, the caring circuit and the uh, uh, panic or the uh, separation anxiety circuit is what helps to bond us as human beings, uh, as adults. That's why when somebody is away, you miss them. And why you enjoy being around people that you have a deep connection with, uh, those two circuits are going together and with uh, like a parent and a child, you see it in the oxytocin uh, levels that, that rise up when, when they get together and they're interacting. Yeah, that's interesting. So 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 we've got seven main circuits, so fear, play. Well, okay, there's two fears, right? Danger, right. and then there's separation anxiety. Yeah. Then there's uh, uh, anger, uh, and then there's, uh, let's say, the caring circuit, uh, lust, which comes up and, you know, during puberty, <laughs> and then you're uh, searching or seeking and um, play. Right. Oh, there you go. It's interesting because I always, I always try with my clients to foster their curiosity because if you stop seeking, you get, oh, you know, I refer to it as being emotionally stuck because that's what keeps us, you know, pushing to understand ourselves. Mm-hmm. And when we, you know, otherwise you become, uh, a monotonous sort of version of yourself because you're not expanding anymore. You're just sort of circulating in between what you, th- you know, different beliefs and, and thought processes that may not necessarily reflect who you really are. Well, so true. Because, yeah. again, all of these uh, you can shut down. I, you know, the classic, when we talk about response patterns, the two classic ones uh, back in the uh, 80s, uh, 70s through 80s that were really big in education, and, and you still hear about them, are learned helplessness. Uh, and you could take uh, like the, the original experiments were with dogs, and they would give them shocks that they could not escape from. And then pretty soon they just gave up trying. They put them into a new environment where they could just walk away very easily, and they didn't even try because they learned they couldn't escape. And you see this with kids a lot uh, coming from, you know, abusive backgrounds. Uh, You see it even in populations where there's been really a harsh dictatorship. They get out of that environment. They still act as if they're in that environment where they don't have a lot of choices and they're, you know, and they're very limited. The the other big one is, or these these ways back then, was a locus of control. Locus is just a fancy word for center. So where's your center of control? Is it outside of you or is it inside of you? So again, people who grow up in an environment where they don't have a lot of choices and they got to really be guarded, they tend to have an outer locus of control. Things just happen to me. You know, I don't have a lot of control in my life. So if they get a raise at work, they'll say things like, well, you know, it just happened. You know, they probably didn't have anybody else they could choose. You know, it's just one of those things. Whereas a person with an internal locus of control uh, they would say things like, well, you know, I work hard. Yeah, I deserve it. I can see where they saw the merit in it. So, or, or like with the homework with kids in education, if uh, one with an external locus of control fails at a test, they'll say things like, uh, well, you know, just can't do it. It's just the way it is, you know, I can't help that. 
where the internal locus of control individual will say things like, well, you know, I really didn't study for it. I could probably put more effort in and do better next time. So again, they see that they have some control and some power in their environment, whereas the other person does not see that. And so that that manifested just a whole lot of, you know, behaviors. Yeah, yeah. And for, for you, do you think that people understand their emotions? You know, how, how do you view, are we aware of ourselves enough that we're understanding our emotions? Well, most of the time we're unconscious. <laughs> it's, it's amazing uh, how much your unconscious part of your brain does on a minute-to-minute basis. I mean, just think, think of the simple act of walking. You know, you got a part of your brain, it's measuring distances, it's coordinating your body, it's watching out for obstacles and dangers, as well as kind of keeping an eye out for good things. And all the while you're thinking about, gee, I wonder what I want to have for lunch, you know, or what am I going to watch on TV tonight? And it's good that your subconscious can do these complex things without thinking about them, because it does free us up to think about other things. But at the same time, a lot of times these negative core response patterns like learned helplessness or, you know, internal or external locus of control, uh, and they start to control a lot of your behavior without you even realizing it. Uh, In fact, everybody has a whole set of uh, individual response patterns that have developed throughout their life, positive and negative. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I found uh, in my work is you put a label on it that gives you a way to start to identify it when it's coming up in your life. Because if you don't have a a name for it or a label, you tend to be unaware of it. Uh, Yeah. So things can range from, you know, uh, conflict is dangerous to uh, the opposite positive would be, you know, I could handle conflict. I have tools. Uh, Intimacy is painful. You know, the opposite of that would be, you know, intimacy is is desirable and it's a good thing. So you take somebody with uh, an example of intimacy is uh, painful. They grew up in an environment where every time they tried to get close to the parent, you know, the parent would distance themselves, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, everything from just drug abuse to just, you know, they're, they were neglected when they were, you know, young. And so now they grow up and I would see them uh, in a counseling session and they would say, you know, I don't understand why every time I find somebody that I want to be, get close to, you know, I do things and it just never works out. I, I, I mess it up. And what's going on is intimacy has been associated with, with pain. And so as an adult, uh, they start to get into a relationship. It starts to get close and all the bells and whistles are going off inside. Danger, danger, danger. And so they do things oftentimes in a very unconscious way that creates distance and pushes the person away. Afterwards, saying to this, I don't understand why I act that way. I don't understand why I did that. And so, you know, we, we could come up with a couple dozen types of things like this that people uh, experience. I mean, the other big one is conflict is dangerous. And you see this in somebody growing up in, in an environment uh, where if they spoke up to the parent or they tried to assert themselves, they got stomped on. Now, again, depending upon the personality, they might mirror that and become a fighter, or they might learn that conflict is dangerous, and then they kind of shut down and they don't try to assert themselves. Now they're at work or someplace, and they'll come in and they'll say, you know, I don't understand why I don't speak up. You know, I'm at a restaurant. I really wanted to order this thing, but my friend said it was no good. So I just, you know, I, I went along with what my friend said. And so those are the types of things that, uh, again, drive people that oftentimes they're totally unaware of uh, until they do some self uh, uh, introspection or, you know, they, they get some help either through a book or through a person or something of that nature. 
So sometimes with clients, I get them to try and help them identify the stuff that we've got that's unconscious is, you know, I explain it to them, you know, think of the old fashioned dot to dot where you, you know, join the dots together and then you see a bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And that if you can't put the dot to the next dot to the next dot, then you you can't understand what what the bigger picture is. What is what is the emotion? Like where did it start? Mm-hmm. And a lot of them talk to me about, and it can be even, you know, really savage abuse when they're children and things like that and they've got these behaviours and as a- adults and they, and they go, I didn't correlate that back to the abuse. You know, it, there's like a break in the circuit that they don't, they they haven't, put the dots together to go because of this I've now got these behaviors you know which which sounds really weird because you think you know that 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 should be an easy you know connection but I actually find a lot of people don't understand themselves and their emotions enough to be able to put all the dots together and it's and it's easy to break a circuit for yourself as well because you do you know these these beliefs get buried within us so we don't comprehend them. So that's where um, understanding your emotions helps you put those dots together. Well, and a lot of times it's simply because they've never been showed how to connect the dots too. You know, it's that's why when I do books, I do lots of examples of people so people can start to relate to, oh, yeah, that looks like what I what happened to me. Because actually, in their essence, emotions are pretty simple. Uh, it's like anger and fear are your two two of your core emotions. And um, anger, when I talk about it, I, I talk about it in a broad sense from just, you know, irritation to rage. And fear is, you know, apprehension to panic. It's just where the dial is turned up or down. And both of those are really just a response to threat. Yeah, and if if the threat is manageable then I'm going to become angry and try to reduce it. And if the threat is unmanageable, then I want to get away from it. So if it's a grizzly bear, I get away. If it's a little tiny dog barking at me, you know, I'm going to yell at it and chase it away. And so when I, I see somebody who has got a lot of anxiety, uh, one of the things I identify or try to look at is, so where's the threat? You know, and sometimes people are, are really not very clear about that. But once you can identify where the threat is, then you can come up with, you know, uh, a way to manage the threat or take a look at is it a real threat or is it a threat from the past and then deal with it, you know, in those terms. And what do you think we need to know about our emotions? What do you think that we're missing? If we're not really understanding our emotions, what is it that we're not being educated about? Well, I, I think, again, if you can get a roadmap as to, you know, what emotions are and how they work, then you can start to put the pieces together. We respond a lot to things that are unreal. Yes. <laughs> you know, we, we have, is- and this is the thing is, is if you are vividly imagining something, your body responds as if it's in the, in the presence right now. So if I'm thinking about a future event that's going to be really threatening to me, my body is going to respond as if it's a real threat happening right now. That's basically how relaxation response uh, works. You imagine some relaxing scenes or something that's relaxing, and then that generates that response inside of your body. The more effectively you can imagine it, the more effectively you get the response pattern. 
And uh, when I work with people, one of the things I've done is is I'll start with uh, what's called a genogram, where you take pictures, a little picture of their family, kind of like a pedigree chart, and you get a description of the adults. And then I take uh, some early recollections, grade school, what was grade school like? Because that's when you kind of get a sense of, uh, am I okay? Am I not okay? Do I have power? Do I not have power? The next set of early recollections. And basically, it's not a really detailed thing. I just say, tell me what that was like for you, uh, and uh, positives and negatives. And you know, middle schools when the next place where the train can go off the tracks, right? <laughs> uh, just because of peer pressure, uh, you got all that adolescent stuff going on, starting up. You know, the hormones are kicking in, and you know, uh, it's just a, an interesting and chaotic time in people's lives. And then, you know, uh, high school because that's the next big place that uh, a lot of stuff happens for people. And then. I can look at that, and usually I can just start making conjectures. You know, I would guess that this and this is an issue to, for you. And they would say, you know, boy, you're some kind of a, you know, magician or something, prophet. And I'll say, no, it's just, it's right there on the paper in front of me. Uh, so people are really fairly easy to figure out once you sit down and kind of look at those types of things within their life. I, again, most people just have never done that. They've never thought about it in those terms. And they've just gone along acting in a very unconscious way, amazed sometimes at some of the negative stuff that they're doing, not realizing what's generating it. Uh, as, as we were talking earlier, you know, so much of our behavior is unconscious. Uh, yeah, yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Like it is fascinating. How do we identify response patterns and how do we learn to change them? Well, uh, we talked about the the learned helplessness and those types of things. And, and a lot of it is just looking at uh, where are you successful in your life and where are you not successful? Because again, we, we're all a mix of positive and negative. It's not like it's yeah. all one way or the other. We, and we we're tend meant to look to be. at the negative stuff we're because that's be. causing problems, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, you know, I deal a lot with anger and anxiety because that causes problems. The other stuff usually doesn't cause problems that much. So I, I have people take a look at, uh, let's say it is the conflict is dangerous. They're, they're not, uh, uh, they're having trouble speaking up when they want to, or conversely, they're the other direction. Uh, we put a label on it. So, and then we say, okay, come up with a simple explanation for why this is the way it is. People tend to get into this uh, circular why questioning I don't understand why this happened. I don't understand why. I mean, why am I acting that way? And I'll just stop them. I'll say, so why do you think you're acting that way? Nine times out of 10, they come up with a very good explanation. It's just that it's something they're having a hard time accepting. So uh, I try to get them to write out a simple one paragraph explanation, nothing very complex. Uh, I grew up in an environment where every time I spoke up, uh, I was put down or I was quieted. Uh, and so I learned that you don't talk, you don't speak up, don't assert yourself. Okay, the next thing I have them do is I say, okay, let's identify very specifically where that program is operating in your life. And that this is kind of a behavioral approach. The more you can pinpoint, these are the situations where this occurs. Okay, it occurs at work when I'm in a meeting. I don't ever, I never express my opinion. I always go along with what's being said. When I'm in a restaurant, you know, I go along with what other people suggest. Uh, when I'm at home and I'm watching TV with my mate, I want to watch a program, but they want to watch something else. I never tell them how much I want to watch this other program. So you come up with a variety of things like that. And then what are the opposite behaviors? 
Because one of the basic behavioral things, if you want to change your behavior, you have to start practicing the opposite positive, right? So we start with the easy areas. We have them start practicing opposite positives. At the same time, giving themselves some very uh, solid self-talk that they can use to help to encourage that. Uh, essentially, you go through a process of desensitization. If I'm working with somebody, oh, I'm thinking of somebody that I worked with who had a fear of water, okay? Very simple phobia, right? Her brothers told her that there were piranhas in the pool, they were going to eat her toes, right? Long time ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so it developed to this big fear of water. You know, as an adult, she just would not go to a pool or the ocean or anything like that. And so, you know, we said, okay, we're going to go through a process of desensitization, taught her some relaxation, breathing skills, ways to manage the anxiety. And she started with sitting next to the water and again, reminding herself that, you know, this is just an old response pattern because of those stupid things my brother said. I'm safe. There's no sharks in the water. Nothing's going to happen to me. And eventually get to where she'd get in and start swimming. You know, it took a period of time, but she desensitized. The same basic process can be used for any behavior. And so when we're talking about like the idea of speaking up, again, you start in simple situations, you practice it, you get some confidence there, and you move on to the next more complex things. Same thing with uh, maybe a, a person who has trouble expressing intimacy, right? Uh, you start with simple things, maybe just giving some simple compliments, and you move on to, depending upon who is in their uh, circle of, of friends, to, you know, deeper things. And so... It works for, you know, it's very mechanical, but it works. Uh, human yeah. beings respond very well to that, that approach. Well, I always giggle when I go into the beach. I hear the Jaws music. So, you know, I, and I diffuse it by laughing, going, mm. oh, okay, that's that movie. You know, that movie's still with me. And, and then I, you know, then I just, it's like once I can give it a logical reason, I don't hear the music anymore. But generally, as I'm walking into the water, I'll hear the the Jaws music, and I was like, <laughs> must have been at the right age to hear that music, you know, so it stayed with me forever. So, yeah. And that, they're the things that impact us, and if we understand them, then we can deal with them if we don't understand them. That's why I believe that self-reflection is so important. If you can't it is, contemplate, and yeah. It's something that is, that is in such short uh, supply nowadays. <laughs> It is actually well. I run courses on it now because it's it's a it's a life skill, but it's a life skill we're losing. And our, our electronics is one of the one of the things that interferes with that. We are so busy with self stimulation, uh, whether it's you know Facebook or you know some other you know internet thing going on, uh, you know, or we're watching TV or you know playing with video games or whatever, and. Uh, and the younger generation is especially uh, having problems with this area. Uh, our Surgeon General just came out with a report talking about the uh, problems with, with uh, social media and electronics and how much anxiety and uh, anger and loneliness and depression that's going on, uh, being caused by, by young people who don't have any genuine relationships. Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? And that even when... You know, I, I was talking to a school teacher once and she said she was on a, a bus, a school excursion bus, and the kids were actually, like they were, I think they were about 12 and years old, and she said that they were sitting there texting each other. Right. But they were, they were sitting next to each other and she said years ago, 
you know, you were telling kids not to to sit down because they were, you know, getting over the backs of the chairs and yak, yak, yak and talking and, you know, like there was this buzz in the, the bus of excitement and she said that lasts for about five minutes now and then they're all on their their phones. I thought, yeah. how sad because they, they're losing that that time where you are learning how to communicate and you are learning different personality types and and you know, they become foundations for you to understand other humans. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and as, as parents, you know, uh, if you've got uh, young children or teenagers, you know, setting up rules, you know, your friends come over, you put all your phones on the uh, counter here and you don't touch them until you guys leave, which may seem harsh. But uh, I, I know my uh, niece uh, with uh, her children, uh, that she's got a basket. They come home, they put their phones in a bas- in this little basket, and, uh, you know, they have a limited time they can do it. And there's some wonderful tools uh, where you can shut the Internet down at a certain time and allow only a certain amount of time on it uh, so that you, you start to have some kind of a control over uh, the electronics that are in your house. And, and I really encourage parents, if they haven't, to, to take a look at some of those tools and, and start using them. Uh, probably the saddest thing for me, though, is to go out to a restaurant and to see both parents on their phone and the kid on their little electronic device. And yeah, nobody's yeah. Talk, nobody's talking throughout yeah, the whole yeah. meal. Yeah, and it's easy to fall into the trap. <clears throat> you know what I mean? Like I, I, I was watching myself. I was actually watching something on telly and then I was TV and then I was picking up the phone. I was like, what are you doing? You know, like why, what, you know, you're either watching this or you're going to do that. And but you know we we're trying to do two things at once, and and we actually can't pull that off. We tell ourselves we are, but yeah. we really you know we don't do it very well, which is you know, so it becomes like a bit of an addiction. So well, it, it we, is because you get a little dopamine push. You know, if, yeah, if if, yeah. if you get that little buzz going on, you know, and this is really bad in a classroom setting. You know, because uh, they've been shown that just not being able to see their phone with some kids will start to cause anxiety. <laughs> yeah, and then of course That's... you get that little buzz, you know, and then oh, there's a there's that dopamine push again. <laughs> uh, what study where they had eighteen uh, year olds to uh, mid twenty year olds do without their uh, any kind of internet for uh, two weeks, and some of them went through withdrawal symptoms very similar to a heroin addict. It was uh, very interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. I can I can see I can see that because you, I was, every, even when you're driving down the main street, you know, shopping centres and things like that, people are walking around looking at their phone. Yeah. So then you know that so it's it's ingrained into them, and and the sad part is you know if you're from the generation where that's always been here, you don't know anything different. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate that way because I'm, I'm definitely, well, I am too. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely know, old school. Yeah. So. I, I bridge the two worlds too, but you know, like I, I see, I see a lot of things changing, but they're not for the betterment of humans, really. You know, yeah. we, we are losing self-reflection skills. We are losing communication skills. We're after instant gratification. Yeah, so we all need of that a quiet time. Yeah. Yeah, we do. And we need to know that some things take time. You know, if you can ask a question, it might take you a while to to work it all out. Whereas where we're sort of telling the way the the way social media is set up things, it's like, you know, you we can give you an instant answer. Right. And then we then we're not discerning whether that answer works for us. So we're losing that. Does this resonate with me personally? 
And it's, the, and it's not just the internet and social media. It's everything in our world. You know, gee whiz, I got to wait five minutes for the microwave to heat up my dinner. <laughs> I mean, gee, what is this, you know? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. I just Googled that. That should be up. You know, like, oh, yeah, I, yeah, we are like yeah. that. So so I'm going to ask you the big question that we ask all our guests. What does humanity need to acknowledge and understand for us to evolve? For me, it's understanding that there is, you, you do have a God and that you are going to meet him someday because we live in such a materialistic world nowadays. People look at themselves as, you know, I'm a little machine, you know, and uh, when I'm dead, it's gone. There's nothing. So I need to get everything I can get right now. And yet I always encourage people, take a look at some of the near-death experience research that's going on. You know, mm. Moody in uh, his book, uh, Life After Life, kind of kicked it off. And you've now got some major studies by actual scientists, you know, doing very rigorous approaches who say, you know, we don't know what's going on, but we know that these experiences are real. The brain is dead. The heart has stopped. And yet people are reporting things in the operating room, in the next room, or they're miles away, that later on for oftentimes will be third party confirmed. And so there's something that goes on after death. And again, they don't want to talk about it because it gets into the whole, you know, spiritual, you know, uh, st side of life. So they want to be scientific. So they just say, we can't explain it. But we know there's something going on, that, that there is something after death that's happening. Oh, yeah, there's uh, a lot of research. Need to take a look at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it too is, is we need to look at the quality of life, of, of how we're actually living because, you know, different people that I'm talking to, we've become very separated and like you said, we've become materialistic and we're trying to tick boxes and, and we're doing that because we're trying to prove to other people that we're successful and we're doing well and, you know, there was a study once on happiness and one of the things that he found was that, and I'm sorry I can't remember the the researcher's name, was that we we govern our happiness now by am I doing better than someone else? Can I see that I'm doing better than someone else? And I think that is terribly sad. Well, it, in fact, with social media, they have a term that they call fear of missing out, yeah. which is very big for young kids. Yeah, when you look at all the different, because uh, the last couple chapters of my book, I talk about the three big things that uh, the, the so-called science of happiness or positive psychology has identified. And number one, above everything else, is relationship, having yeah. deep, meaningful relationships. And that's, I think, an area that people are re really lacking in today because of their isolation and their hooking in. You know, you leave, you've got your garage door opener, you know, you got your earbuds in, you go to work, or you stay home and you're in your little cubicle, you come home, you know, and you can go through your whole day without having a meaningful conversation with somebody else. And that mm -hmm. is so sad because people used to have, you know, their extended family, you know, their surrounding village or the block that they lived on, people that they knew for 20 years. Uh, you yeah. had a problem, you'd go, if not to your parent, you'd go over to, you know, uncle or the, you know, the older guy that you used to have a relationship with or gal or whoever. Uh, and people don't have that now. And so you wonder why there's so much increase in anxiety and depression, you know, uh, loneliness. Loneliness is a, is a major thing that's really uh, ramped up uh, in the last uh, 10, 15 years. And it's not just COVID. It's been yeah, going on before then. And it's, yeah. it's escalating even now. Uh, 
Because again, people have lost the art of relationship, especially young people. Yeah. And I have a small group I've been meeting with for 20 years and <laughs> we know each other really well. Yeah. But people don't have that. And so as a therapist, a lot of times you're a paid friend. You yeah. know, you're somebody that they can really talk to on a deep level. And yeah, I have insights and I can give them some tools and stuff. But sometimes that that's the most important part of therapy is just being able to connect with somebody on a deep level. If you've got three or four people, even two or three, that you can do that with, you don't have to worry about your mental health. You're probably going to be okay because you'll have people you can talk to and you know discuss things at that deep level and share your hurts and your joys, your successes and your failures. And that's a lot of what people need. People used to have a lot of time to do that. We don't have that anymore. Yeah, you took the words Unless out of my mouth. Is, yeah, yeah. You, you have to have set to. it as a priority. Yeah, I agree. And we are becoming busier and busier and busier and losing. That's that's why I always say look at look at your lifestyle. And I don't mean your financial setting. I mean, mm-hmm. how are you living? Do you have those relationships? Because mm-hmm. I think it's important that, you know, a really good friend or, or, or relative or, or someone that you trust, they're, they're a sounding board that you can toss ideas around mm-hmm. and get an understanding of, of where you're at and where you want to be, you know, within yourself. I'm not, you know, I'm talking about emotions. And then you can have some input or discussion. And, it, and, and you might completely disagree with the advice that your friend gives you, but you've said, you know, you've, you've mm-hmm. opened up and expressed the truth of what you're feeling. And then from there you can go somewhere. And oftentimes just being heard and accepted mm. is is what makes a big difference in a person's life. Yeah, you, and and whether, whether they agree or not, no, to know it. that they're going to accept you as you are, you know, yeah. warts and all, and still you're fine. And it's all right to have difference of of opinion. It's all right for for you to listen to someone's advice and then go, I get why they're saying that, but it doesn't quite work for me, but I'll take that little bit there and that yeah. can be the door opener for what what works for you, you know, so that we don't have to have, because I, I get a, a lot of clients sometimes that they'll have really controlling friends that start dictating what oh, they yeah, should be doing, yeah. you know, and well, which we, all, do, they that, always we come, do that with experts nowadays, right? <laughs> You know, I used we to tell do. my clients, uh, you know, think of me kind of like a used car salesperson, right? Don't believe or accept anything I say, run it through your own brain, see if mm. it fits and if it's reasonable. You know, that that's something, that's a criteria that people often don't do. Is it reasonable? Just because somebody has credentials after their name or they've you know, written a book or they're, you know, in some position somewhere, doesn't exactly. mean they know diddly squat about who you are or your life. Uh, you're the one who, who has to trust your own opinion. In fact, that was one of the hardest things I sometimes had to do with people is to get them to trust that they could decide for themselves, you know, what is what was good for them. Yeah, I agree. And that we get, I, I feel we're getting more and more of that because we are, because of the generation coming through social media, that they're always being told so they're not discerning you know they you know they're watching something so they're taking that as that's how it works that's how how this works they're not discerning their own opinion which ma- makes it harder for them to resonate with what yeah. is of value to them so and we do we do sort of we're like cattle you know we all jump on one trend and away we go and then we wait for the next trend and away we go and 
and where are we individually mm. in that? You know, so I always get, always try to remind people you're within the the collective of humanity, but you are a unique spark within that collective. Oh yeah, yeah, and we're, they're the kind of things we're losing. I think, which is, I find it um, very sad and. And I feel it takes people so far away from their natural self that they they become image driven and nearly robotic. So they they shut down a lot of what they're feeling. So they become more and more unconscious of their emotional patterns and things like that. Well, when when you're busy, you you can't be in, very in touch. <laughs> no, well that's right. Yeah, you're running from one place to the other. And the the other thing I see is that you know. Before, when we grew up, like you said, you've, you've got your neighbours and your uncles and you've got this extended connection to other people, different ideas. Now people, their peers are someone that they don't even know off the internet yeah. who's, you know, promoting themselves really, which is, you know, that's how it works. But it it becomes very, I don't know, it becomes very shallow in lots of ways because they don't feel the connection. Well, and that's why you have to have some, some people that you have that deep connection with and uh, mm. it takes time. Again, we used to have lots of time, lots of time to go to town, lots of time out in the field or doing whatever chore we were doing. And, you know, and we live at such a fast pace nowadays, unless you schedule that time for yourself and for those things that are important, you can find yourself just on that old treadmill running faster and faster. So it, it's a priority. It's like when I was in private practice, I actually scheduled in time for the gym just like I would a client uh, because it was important for my body. So still yeah, do that. that. makes sense. Yeah. So what was your other two points at the end of your book about happiness and positivity? Well, relationship is number one. That's the big one. The second one mm -hmm. is purpose, uh, having a reason to get up in the world. And the broader the purpose, the better. Uh, a narrow purpose would simply be, you know, I'm going to be a, a good mom or I'm going to sell the most widgets I can, which works until the kids are gone or widgets are no longer being sold. <laughs> uh, so having something a little bit broader is useful. And oftentimes it'll tie into the third one, which is meaning. So uh, yeah. relationship, purpose, and meaning. Meaning is a little hard to describe because, again, it's those answers you have for the big questions in life. You know, what is life all about? Is there life after death? Uh, what is you know, um, how do I deal with tragedy? How do I put it into context? And so your existential or spiritual uh, beliefs or how you put that into context when bad things happen. You lose somebody, you lose work, you're not able to do something you want to do. So how do I, what do I do with that? And so having something, a context uh, of an existential or spiritual belief system that helps you manage that is very important. So relationship purpose uh and then meaning and purpose again it couldn't be broader such as i want to help people live better lives through uh, the counseling that i do uh or i want to uh, uh bring something useful into the world you know i want to make useful products for them and design mm -hmm. things as opposed to just you know a very narrow purpose and yeah. and you can have more than one purpose right oh <laughs> definitely just one yeah 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 mm -hmm. Definitely. I like all of those. So that's, yeah, it's brilliant. And I think sometimes your purpose can be, how do I want to live? How do I want to, what sort of relationships do I want to have? And, right. 
yeah, so you can blend those three very easily together. So, oh, and and purpose and meaning they kind of work hand in hand. You know, they one yeah, goes off sure. the other. So, yeah, yeah, that's why I like the idea of spiritually exploring. Which really, to me, spirituality is understanding yourself mm-hmm. and understanding that you're part of a bigger picture. And however you discover that, however you whatever path that takes you on, brilliant, as long as you're enjoying it and it feels like it resonates with you. Yeah. That's the way. So I think it's time to play Flip the Book. So would you like to pick a book between, um, you've got three to pick from, sorry, one, two or three. Which book would you like? And well, I know we'll, take you can't... we'll take two. Take two, brilliant. So that is called, oddly enough, Spirituality, Evolution and Awakened Consciousness. So you have one to 188 pages to pick from. I will take uh, 106. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You got seven paragraphs. Oh, seven, of course. Seven. <laughs> okay, so this is under the heading Karma Provides Evolutionary Opportunities. You said calmness? Not karma. Karma. Oh, karma. 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 Okay. Karma. Sorry, karma. Yeah. Bit of accent thing happening there, I'd say. So not everything you experience you attract, nor is it a mirror, nor is it a mirrored reflection of you. Sometimes it's consequence. Sometimes it's consequences with this, and other times you are the innocent bystander to another's decision to unleash their unconsciousness. Would you like me to read that again? Oh, gee, I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> You know, we we live in an interesting world, and sometimes that things happen to us because of something we've done directly, mm-hmm. and sometimes we're just collateral damage. You know, because we do live in a, in a broader a broader reality. You know, around us, uh, and uh, mm-hmm. not sure where to go to after that, but. Uh, I, I see a lot of people and they're stuck on this belief that if something bad happened to them, mm-hmm. it's because they attracted it in or it's a reflection of something that's hidden within themselves. Mm-hmm. So I've always, I always find that is not always true. You know, sometimes it is. You know, if you're nasty to someone and someone's nasty back, there's a bit of a reflection and, and there's a consequence mm-hmm. that you've received from your behaviour. and. So, you know, I would say I always look at intent, purpose and consequences, knowing that consequences you're not always in control of and it's not always a complete mm. reflection of, of the decisions you've made. But I see, I see people and they, they flip that back on themselves, believing they're to blame. You know, they're stuck in that, well, if I wasn't, you know, there must be something wrong with me because, you know, this happened to me or you know, which often stems from trauma backgrounds and things like that as well. So, yeah, so that's, I've wrote a lot about understanding karma as an action. It's an, it's an energy action mm-hmm. and looking at our baggage is our emotional baggage is something that we've stored because we haven't been able to be in a position that we felt safe enough or have the information to be able to address it and resolve it. Mm. And it stays there until we actually do. And I say that we carry that wherever our soul goes, 
Mm. We carry that until we resolve it. So we keep coming back to resolve some of these issues. So that was the the essence behind that paragraph, which, you know, that's the end of a chapter, I think. So, oh, no, it's not. It's in the middle. So, yeah. So I'll, I'll just read out the top of the page and see where you go. We are creators with free will and we decide what we create. Our creations are our karma. Well, again, my worldview is a little bit different. You know, I, I, I believe my creator wants what's good for me. And uh, my task is to, whatever happens to me, to glorify him as much as I can. And he's going to use whatever happens to me in, in a way that's positive ultimately, even if in the short term it's it's not, doesn't look at Look like yeah. it's positive, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's it's well, it's you know, it's for my good and it's to glorify him. And uh, when I go into life that way, that's what I find happens. I mean, I've had some not so good things happen to me, but in the in the long run, it it comes out good. To, to use maybe a biblical uh, uh, analogy, uh, when uh, the five thousand and the uh, four thousand were fed. They went and they picked up all the pieces afterwards, right? And to me, nothing goes to waste in your experience and in your life. Uh, it all can be turned to something positive if you allow it. Oh, I love that. That's a good mm-hmm. way to finish. Yeah, nothing's wasted if we if we if we use it well. Yeah, and and understanding our emotions and ourselves is a is a brilliant way of using our life experiences mm-hmm. and our past. I want to thank you for being on the show. Um, I appreciate you sharing time with me. Well, yeah, this was fun. So thank you for inviting me.